0: Hey, Rockville, it's Susan Pittman. I'm in the garage today with Matt Perkins. Jamie is still out for Thanksgiving. And today's guest is Jonathan Robinson. He lives here in Rockville and he is a part of Affordable Maryland. We're looking forward to hearing what he's got to say. How's it going, Matt? Good.
1: Thanks for bringing in the turkey for Thanksgiving. <laughs>
0: here I am. <laughs> Matt, you're not a turkey. Did you have a good Thanksgiving?
1: I did, in New Orleans. Uh, went to visit my daughter and her partner down there, ate at a lot of good restaurants, and she cooked an amazing Thanksgiving meal. We also got to go to the horse races.
0: Oh, very fun. Yes. Very fun. How was your weather down there?
1: Better than here, but not so much that I regretted
0: leaving because of the weather. Okay, got it. Got it. Jonathan, welcome, how are you?
2: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: Good, good. How was your Thanksgiving?
2: Fantastic. We stay local. My uh, in-laws are in Baltimore. Nice. Um, and so uh, it's just an hour drive away.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Well. Yeah, we stayed home. We've been sleeping and eating for three days. It's been fantastic.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's the way to go in yeah. Baltimore. It's a city I love.
0: Yeah. So, Jonathan, how'd you end up here in Rockville?
2: Um, so, uh, I met my wife in college um, we went to to GW um, and we graduated in 2012 um, and we you know lived in different parts of DC proper um, and the first place that I lived and I, I lived there for about from when I graduated for close to seven or eight years and it was a a little uh, English basement apartment in the 16th Street Heights, um, and actually, right before the pandemic, we were like, we got to get out of this this basement. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it was a, a lovely neighborhood, a great landlord, but um, we the only light we got was because we happened to be in the in the basement unit of this row house that abutted an alley, um, and it was just uh, no, it, you know, we were we were over it. Um, And when we started surveying just what rent for a different kind of place would look like in DC for just a little bit of a cut above for us and our dog at the time, um, we were shocked. We just had a really kind landlord who um, lived above us and who was very, very, very lovely. And um, we were sort of shocked to know that just even the next rung up in DC, we were just totally priced out. Um, And my wife's a lawyer, she'd um, done a clerkship out here at the circuit court, Um, and so we loved Rockville um, and we thought, what would it look like to move out here, um, to have more space, to have a place where uh, we could call home that would be uh, more affordable. And then the pandemic happened Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, we waited and um, got very, very lucky, I think, in the grand scheme of things to land in Hungerford um, as sort of a small uh, little house. Um, on a cul-de-sac um, and we you know we love it out here um, the stuff that we uh, you know the cross out here um, we think are one of the things that make Rockville and Montgomery County really great which is just um, the diversity of the people um, the proximity to DC and the amazing food so um, you know that's how we ended up here we moved here in late um, 2020 and so we, this is our third year here
0: that's great. So before we get into the meat of this, I need to just stay say at the top. I am a commissioner, I'm for the planning commission in the city of Rockville. And you are working for a nonprofit about that is focused on affordable housing. So there's some topics I'm going to avoid, such as zoning. So if we get into that kind of thing, I'm going to step out and let Matt take over. Um, but we will talk about You know the election and all that kind of good and what you guys are about and all that good stuff. Oh,
1: we're definitely getting into (laughs) (laughs) zone.
0: All right, that's gonna be all yours
1: Ready to go guarantee it, but we can start with some other things first
0: Yeah, you know it would Jonathan just tell us a little bit about affordable Maryland who founded it. Why was it founded? What's your mission? How's it evolving? Give us some background.
2: Absolutely. So, um, Affordable Maryland is a project of now two people, but but previously three people. Um and uh the story of it is is really kind of um kind of simple but has been a long time coming, which is that um for the last decade plus I've worked in democratic and progressive politics. I have a background in applied statistics and research, um, and I've uh you know worked I work at I have for the last decade worked at a firm called Catalyst, which is Sort of very involved in the empirical, statistical um, side of uh, helping uh, sort of progressive and democratic causes.
0: It wasn't Catalyst, founded by Bob Blameyer
2: Yeah, who's a, who's a, a friend a, of mine, a guest I of the know. guest I on the program. Bob. That's yep. our
0: buddy. Yep. All right. So I'm uh, sorry to interrupt you. No, no,
2: not at all. No, no, no. I love Bob, and if you're listening, hi. Um, I've I've known Bob for many years, and he um, and I overlapped at Catalyst when I was yeah. uh, just starting out. Um, so. Um, So I've always been very passionate about politics. I've worked professionally in politics for over a decade. So like very steeped in elections and um, just sort of top to bottom, sort of what it takes to get things done um, for the causes that I and the people who we work with um, care about. Um, And you know, when I was in, in DC and sort of got sort of radicalized a little bit for lack of a better term of just how hard it was to afford beyond what we had um, in terms of where we were living and what the rent was or what the the cost was or what the mortgage would be. Um, And when we moved out here, I sort of felt this big push and obligation to do more than what I had done when we lived in D.C., which was, you know, I, uh, you know, would attend, um, you know, advisory neighborhood commission meetings about different projects or um, try to talk to my neighbors about uh, things we could do to try to make uh, the cost of living more affordable than where we were. And so when I moved out here, I was connected with a really broad community of people who care about a lot of those same things. So at the core of it, there are two big nonprofits who do this kind of work in Maryland and Montgomery County. One's Greater Greater Washington, which is a fantastic website, but I read and still do read religiously um, about sort of everything that's going on from transit to housing to just sort of general issues of current affairs in the area another one was the Coalition for Smarter Growth. Um, and so I met some of these people. Um, I sort of learned the lay of the land. You know, I was very interested, I'm very interested in local politics everywhere. Um, I didn't even know at that time when I moved out here that Rockville had its own government that had a planning commission that governed all these things. That was just totally new to me. Um, and uh, when we were, um, when I was initially very interested in was, you know, I had this background in politics um, you know, I and some of those folks um, who I met, um, we were very concerned about Mark Elrich, the county executive of Montgomery County. Um, and we thought that sort of the policy agenda that he puts forward, what he sort of represented was not something we were behind and we wanted to figure out sort of the best way to um, uh, to, to sort of make a, a big impact in Maryland and Montgomery County on these affordability housing affordability issues. Um, and so when I spoke to some of these folks, um, the sort of sense I got was like, what can you do if this is what you care about? Um, and what people would say to me was, was some version of, "Well, oh, you know, you should give money to a candidate or you should uh, canvass for them or you should host a party at your house to raise money for them. Um, stuff that sort of seemed very reasonable to me, but I've been spending this last decade sort of working in electoral politics and sort of seemed like, there was a lot more to do um, and this idea of a independent expenditure pack or a super pack as it's sometimes called is like very much a post-citizens united reality of electoral politics um, they exist this is not the first this is not the first election that they've, they've happened in uh, it probably won't be the last and there we're not this is not an original idea um, but i met a couple of people who when we talked about this idea and we were commiserating about what we could do, and we had you know really big aspirations about what what could we do, what would be the most impactful thing if we could make it happen, it was you know start a independent expenditure pack to oppose um, people who are uh, you know we think are in conflict with an important uh, policy agenda item, which is affordable housing. And so I met two people, one of whom is still involved with our group, and one of whom isn't, um, for great reasons. Um, so one of them is my really good friend, Adam Gentelson. So Adam lives in Tacoma Park. Um, he's former deputy chief of staff for Harry Reid, and he's current chief of staff for John Fetterman. So um, when uh, Adam went into the Senate to be uh, Senator Fetterman's chief of staff, um, you know he uh, took a step back from the work that we're doing. He's not really involved anymore, um, but still an incredible friend, uh, someone who I worked with really closely um, before he went into the Senate. Um, And then another uh, partner of ours who works in our our core group is Eric Saul, um, who's architect in Tacoma Park. Um, He's a little well-known for a sort of snarky uh, sort of Montgomery County Onion website that he runs that really uh, is a little focused on sort of down county, more than up county, called the Tacoma Torch. Um, And Eric's just an extremely funny, extremely smart guy. Um, And we're all on the same wavelength. And our view was, you know, let's let's shoot really big and, and try to make a big splash and, um, you know, uh, push our involvement beyond what it had been before. Um, and in the last, um, in the primary election in 2022, um, we ended up raising uh, close to a million dollars to run ads to oppose Mark Elrich. And we think we were like a really important part of why the race was so close. Um, and so that's where we started. Um, You know, we have uh, plans to continue to expand in Maryland. That's part of the reason why we cared a lot about the Rockville and Gaithersburg elections that just happened recently. Um, And that's sort of the origin story of our group.
0: that's, That's really interesting. And it's, I think, one of the things, it's not a new idea, right? These independent super PACs. But what, it's a new idea to Rockville, sure. so I think that's why it, that postcard made such a splash. So what's so? What is your mission? Do you have a mission statement or a couple of goals? That
2: yeah, you can I, share. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so um, you know, our view is we have a very broad agenda, which is just we think that there should be a more attainable and affordable housing in Montgomery County and in Maryland more broadly. Um, so some of that is just uh, you know affordable housing has these various different definitions, of course, but like um, some of it has to do with that. But a lot of it just has to do with the fact that there are people who would like to move here um, and there just isn't any housing at, at most price points um, for people who'd like to move here. And we think that um, housing growth and population growth and economic growth um, and delivering great social services and having vibrant communities are a really big, big thing for the future of where we live. And so that's like very broadly, we have a sort of very, I think, broad focus. We're very open-minded. We don't have a ton of litmus tests in my view. Um, We are in favor of an all of the above approach um, to um, to, to reach those kinds of goals. And we like to support people who are thinking really critically and working really hard and building coalitions to make that happen. Um, and then on occasion, sometimes we are in opposition to people who don't think it's a problem, um, or um, who are actively putting up roadblocks to, to making those kinds of things a reality.
1: And with the formation of this PAC coming from your opposition to Mark Elridge, what, what particular policies do you find problematic, and, and how do you see Rockwell is either representing kind of that countywide status quo or going off in a different direction?
2: Yeah I mean so kind of to synthesize a little bit of what um Susan said earlier sort of like why are we here what sort of had been the sort of big motivating push for us um so you know Rockville um you know it's it's a you know it's not as big of a land area as Montgomery County but Rockville has its own zoning and planning authority Um, So that's really important. I don't think a lot of people know that, Um, you know, for example, a thing that um, came up recently that we and others have um, uh, discussed is often you'll hear people hear about the new rent stabilization bill that was just passed in Montgomery County, um, and people think um, that that applies to Rockville or Gaithersburg Um, and both of those places both have zoning and planning authority That supersedes the county authority in most contexts Um, and so for us we really wherever there is policy that is being able that that can affect the housing market um, in a very broad sense um, we and the stakeholders who we work with want to be involved in those kinds of of those kinds of decisions Um, and we want to be involved in supporting people who we think are good And we want to um, make sure that voters know that politicians who are in opposition uh, to to those goals um, that they are aware of that. Um, And so, you know, for us, it's with Mark Elrich at the time. You know, I don't want to dwell too much on it, but just this has kind of been his mo for many, many years. Is kind of, um, uh, you know, he said some things. You know, his words and his actions um, have said that this is to him. He doesn't think this is a big problem. He doesn't think that we need more attainable housing for people. Um, He thinks that we're kind of full. Um, He thinks that the housing that is being built is millennial housing. Um, He sort of uh, has had this sort of long history of opposing, uh, you know, opposing more housing. Um, And so for us... The county council has a lot of the zoning authority, but the county executive also has a really big input um, And so we had worked with others who were in opposition to him um, And I'm proud of the work that we did there even though um, we uh, you know that he ended up winning a very close re-election so um, but you know the reason why we're here in Rockville is um, despite uh, What people might think and this is actually something that came up when we when we spent the million dollars against Mark Elrich was people were sort of confused like why would someone want to enter into our elections and um why would they why would they do that and the answer is just like either at the end of the day you think a local government at least in montgomery county's case that covers a million people is important or you don't Um, and if it's important and there are important issues to be made then we think that the voice that the policies that we care about should be at the table and rockville it's not the same thing right um, you know, it's not a million people. Doesn't have as broad of an authority over a huge swath of people. But at the end of the day, either you think it, Rockville elections are important and people should care about them and people should have a say in them, and good candidates should be lifted up, um, or in the case of Mark Elrich, we you know less than less than good candidates should be um, people should be made aware of what they're about. Um, uh, we think that's important. So, um, uh, and you know. A lot of people, maybe there's this, this broader public citizen education thing. We talked a little bit before the, um, before recording about just sort of local news and mm-hmm. civic education. And I mean, to be fair, you know, as someone who moved to Maryland and then voted in his first election in the primary election in 2022, I was floored about how many races we're talking about um, that are on the ballot, whether it's your multiple state legislative candidates, Um, sheriff (laughs) retention elections for uh the for the for the judicial uh branch comptroller governor lieutenant governor attorney general um it's just there's a lot um and then that's not even the rockville like elections or the civic infrastructure or whatever in terms of the mayor who the city manager is who the council is do we have districts do we not have districts and then the um, ballot initiatives So there's just a lot Um, and so I don't blame people for not knowing that oh yeah Rockville is the one who has its own uh, you know deals with certain intersections in the city limits and the county doesn't Um, or uh, zoning whether it's whether does this new rent control um, rent stabilization bill apply to Rockville or not it's a lot Um, and so um, you know it's a tall order for us to both educate the public about those things and talk about candidates that we support so, we're almost always going to be uh, doing the supporting, um, but part of why we're having these conversations is, don't you know, just make sure people are aware um, and that important decisions are being made. And wherever important decisions are being made, we want, to, we want to be there. Right.
0: Right. So, policies have trade-offs, right? Your platform of affordable and attainable housing has trade-offs. So what do you see as some of those trade-offs? and um is there a line where it simply needs where it the trade offs aren't worth it like it's it's too much
2: um <clears throat> that's a great question um so i think i mean the first thing i'd like to say is i think a lot of the trade offs are maybe a little bit overblown um you know i think one clear one for example is like <clears throat> if you're talking about building you know and this has happened in other places i mean you hear about people's concerned about this all the time like you have like a Houston or something like that right where people built in a floodplain um, and uh, or we have in Florida where people are building on the coast and we've seen huge increases in like flood insurance or disaster insurance that's made it clear that like some of those places where um, this, uh, this the housing has been built is not um, you know it's not safe for it's not sustainable and so i you know i those are i think some of like the major trade-offs that i'm like most worried about you know we want housing to be safe we want housing to be secure um so like to me like the, those are some of like the big trade-offs i think about that come to mind i don't think so most people think about um you know uh so, so from from my perspective those are the like some of the big trade-offs i think some of the benefits are just huge right i mean we have certain Parcels of land in our area, you know, I think Twinbrook Quarter is like a great example, just like qualitatively, right? I mean, we're talking about uh, essentially a parking lot in the um, and a Fuddruckers, uh, and there are a lot of great uses that we could put towards that land. Um, and I think there are some concerns that people have, right? Uh, you know, school overcrowding, for example, or increasing enrollment in those uh, areas is like a major concern. Um, I think we have very good data on some of these things, though every project and every area is different. That you know, some people will move to an area and they will have kids and they will send their kids to school, um, and that is a real thing. Um, and uh, but this is not you know a surprise, right? Like we know the kinds of people who are going to move into these buildings. We know the capacity, <clears throat> excuse me, of our schools. Um, to me, these are all like very solvable issues that a dynamic government can do, right? Which is like when more people move to an area and we see that there are more people who are living here, um, we can plan, you know, to add additions to schools. We can, you know, be creative about these things. I tend to think that some of the trade-offs tend to be, um, uh, by with really good leaders, like very much, uh, uh, very easy to overcome. Um, I think that the trade-offs end up being a thing tends to um, speak a little bit uh, badly of just our ability as a society to be very dynamic, Um, a failure of uh, planning, a failure of, uh, uh, you know, of foresight or flexibility. Um, So that's not to say there are no, you know, certainly no trade-offs, but I tend to think the ones that I worry about the most are about the security of these places, about the long-term uh, sustainability of them um, and uh, but all of these things I think are like genuinely overcomeable um, and we have great leaders um, who I think are like know that these are issues. Um, you know they're not naive about them. they're certainly nothing these things don't just happen and they're great and they're amazing and we do nothing. Um, they require maintenance, they require care. Um, but I think like generally speaking, uh, a lot of these things are overcomeable, and the great thing is just that there are people, you know, the there are local governments all over the country and all over the world, right? Who are doing different things, um, and we can learn from them. Um, you don't need to necessarily travel one place or another. Um, you can just read about what's happening in, you know, uh, you know, in South Bend, Indiana, where you know they've developed sort of like model codes that are very easy to implement. Um, And designs that are easily easily approved um, that are secure and built well by reputable people Um, There's just all these uh, little innovations that are happening in all sorts of different places um, And there's a lot to learn from so
1: Would it be fair to say that kind of the the root of affordable housing fixes and kind of challenges at this point are just just not not enough housing to meet demand and kind of artificially restrict restricted housing development
2: yeah i mean i think it's kind of the core issue at, that underlies everything um you know you don't have to look very far in some places um you know just read the new york times about tokyo um you know uh their housing market is kind of the sort of exact opposite of ours um you know uh they have Uh, just you know had an incredible uh, force of will to develop and grow um, in part because they're kind of land restricted you know like they live on an island there's just not a lot of places that you can build further out it's it's, you know here that's like a little bit of a blessing Um, and a curse somewhat just sort of like depending on your perspective like I think in Montgomery County we've seen as it's been harder to develop housing in our area in Down County you see people moving out to all the way out past you know Clarksburg to Frederick now and in part of that just because the land is there it's cheaper and uh, there are fewer restrictions out there um, just because there's stuff that you can build uh, townhomes or uh, uh, little developed communities um, you don't run up into those same uh, bottlenecks um, but in, in Japan and in Tokyo in particular um, they haven't run up against those same uh, frictions. And so I, I don't think that's the only thing. I mean, you know, in some of these places they have a lot of other policies besides just, uh, uh, you know, they're not, it's not just like a building bonanza solves all problems, but it makes things a lot easier. Um, and so, you know, they live in an almost upside down world in Japan where like newer housing is actually a lot cheaper than older housing, um, uh, even with rent control. Um, just because it sort of stabilizes rents for older units and the newer units are just so much cheaper because they're in much higher demand and so you have this weird upside down uh problem where actually they have kind of the reverse they're they have the reverse problem of ours um and so you don't have to look very far to sort of see what um a future like that could look like that's not the only model you know there are other places like singapore where everything is, is like extremely publicly owned and um you know i don't think that's perfect either I don't think we expect to do that but there's just a lot of models for thinking about how to do that um, even within our own county um, so uh, you know I I really do have like a very I do strongly believe that's at the core of a lot of our problems um, and I uh, but I don't certainly don't think it's the, um, the only thing but I think it's kind of the first thing that we need to um, solve before we can move on to other things so it's sort of very much uh like at the forefront of like what we're thinking about um and you know i have views on like the best way to accomplish that but one of the things that has been so exciting about even listening to the candidates in the rockville election or gaithersburg election is just there are so many people who have lots of different ideas about how to accomplish this i don't i think there are a lot of constraints right there's sort of what the public thinks um, there's elected officials like have constraints, some of them are concerned about changes in the future, which I totally understand. Um, and so it's, it's really refreshing to listen to people and to read their responses and thoughts on this because there's just so many different uh, uh, ways to approach this. I think a lot of these problems are like, very imminently solvable with people who are focused, who know this is a problem, um, and who really want the best for the community going forward. And so, you know, that has been like a a really exciting thing, you know, knowing these problems are really big, but also like meeting people who are fresh um, and who are very passionate about some of the same things that we are.
0: What do you think is the biggest misconception? When people hear affordable housing, what do you think, what do they have in their mind that maybe you wish they didn't?
2: Um, You know, it kind of cuts both ways. Um, so uh, you know one of the one of the the way when I lived in DC I first heard about Mark Alrich was that he talked about what he called millennial housing <laughs> sort of in a derisive way right sort of like a, apartments maybe the ones that you would see in Rockville Town Center or you would see in Pike and Rose um, and, uh, and, and so I think number one is like uh, it cuts both ways in that um, I think what people generally want is they want sort of the not too hot, not too cold approach, sort of the Goldilocks. The Goldilocks is like something that no one's making a ton of money off of, um, uh, so it's not just housing for you know extremely wealthy people or something like that. People don't, I think, necessarily want that. I think there's like a concern, right, that like that's something that wouldn't be affordable to a normal person. That's kind of the status quo that we have, right? People always say like, oh, they tore down that house, right, and they, they built something that was huge. Um, and and so I think there's, there's some, and I think you see when you survey people about projects like academics, economists say this, there's like a little bit of a, like, a disdain for that. I think like, understandably so. But there's kind of like this whole other end of the spectrum, which is like, well, we people want it to be affordable, um, but they don't want it to be so affordable that, um, you know, people who move in who, uh, you know, I think they're like afraid of like the composition of their neighborhood changing or peop- large families or overcrowding. Um, so there's kind of this interesting sort of um, tension, um, which is that, you know, at the end of the day, like we live in America um, and uh, sometimes some people move in down the street from you who aren't exactly who you had in mind. Um, And so I think there's like a little bit of attention there in both respects. Like I think people wish it was kind of like, well, the person who is building this new house down the street from me, they're going to make no money off of this, right? They're going to sell it to just, you know, a great... They're going to interview everybody and do it, you know, sort of on the basis of how you would pick that person. But at the end of the day, like the market is just kind of like based on other factors. Um, uh, You know, I've actually like, I'm I'm very, um, I I understand where people are coming from. Like I think um, there's a, we moved out here for a reason. Like we, and everyone moves to different areas of the country or their own neighborhood for like some of those same reasons. Um, And I think people are very suspect, I think like rightfully so. Sometimes I think there's some distrust, distrust around changes and how they're going to impact people um but i think the thing that we've learned in terms of talking to people and meeting people all over the country is that like a very powerful thing that's happening is that things are changing all the time even if the government isn't doing anything and so the thing that i've learned a lot just from talking to people you know like you or other people in rockwell especially like for me like some of the older residents who've been here for a long time is like why did you move out here in the first place um and I think a lot of people it was like you know i wanted to for the same reason my wife and i did right? it was like dc is expensive i really wanted to move out here because this was within our means um, while also still being part of a great community that has all these amazing aspects to it um and i think the thing that has been most impactful hearing people is that they come and sometimes people come to it sort of on their own it's just that like these things have been changing even as the government kind of hasn't done anything um, and so there's this, I think, concern about, yeah, too expensive or too cheap or what the implications of that are. Um, but um, I think at the end of the day, the thing that when we've talked to people and has resonated the most is that just about like sort of what it means to live in a community. Um, what we, the sort of idea that when we moved out here was.
0: Um, My favorite line to use on people is that coming from the south 10 years ago it was a stretch because the housing was so I mean the gap has closed a bit now but if it was now if the pitmans were in New Braunfels Texas now we couldn't move here and i i think you know we have some pretty good friends here i think we'd be kind of sad if we <laughs> you know if we couldn't be here so I, that's how i i've that's what i've the perspective I've used with people is I couldn't afford to buy here now if I was moving now. I could I could barely afford to move here 10 years ago coming from where I came from. And there's people, it's not just people coming from D.C., from a more expensive market to a less expensive market. There are people who are picking up their whole life and moving here for opportunity and to contribute um, who can't.
2: Absolutely. I don't, know. Well, I don't know if you have a, a similar story to that well i I, i'm gonna go
1: even further back actually my favorite kind of misconception is that the idea that we should build more of everything is somehow um, driven by developers and developers is the big bad wolf in this argument when in reality in this environment of artificial scarcity and, and small numbers of opportunities the only People who can build and make money right now are big developers. Um, In my neighborhood, Twinbrook, the housing stock is now uh, 75 years old. Uh, A lot of it needs fixed up, rehabbed. You can do that for yourself, but if somebody wants to make money, they need to come in and radically increase the size of a 1,200 square foot house. And sell it for many hundreds of thousands more than they bought it in order to just make money at developing. So for most of our housing is coming from places like Twinbrook Quarter right now, where you have to have oodles of money to even think about getting that project off the ground. And then I I think back to um, before I was born in my family, my father. You're wearing the G W sweatshirt. Uh, at 25 years old, was able to work essentially an entry level job in insurance. He was a claims adjuster, pay his way through GW Law School at night, and support a growing family of three and buy a house in Bowie. On Amazing entry level salary. And and you mentioned when you graduated, Whew, that hurt. <laughs>
0: yeah, That I did. I was um, like, oh boy. <laughs> by. Uh,
1: Oh, my daughter graduated in high school in 2012, the youngest one. <laughs> um, but it, it's really a generational kind of thing, too, now, and, and it seems politically there's a lot of opposition to opening up the building market from people who invested here decades ago, and, and most of their wealth is in their house, um, and... Proponents or opponents of like increased building and loosening zoning and other laws um, often, you know, play on the fear of, oh my gosh, what happens if my most prized possession or my greatest um, haven of wealth decreases in value?
2: Yeah, I think that some of that's definitely happening. Um, but in my experience, it's been a little bit more visceral, which I think is kind of, there's a bit of a hope there, right? I think like sometimes there's a thought that um, if it's a pocketbook thing, like it's totally not overcomable, right? It's just like, uh, what will end up happening is like, uh, if there is, if if supply and like demand, Econ 101 stuff applies, right? The supply will go up um, and the costs will go down. Um, right.
1: And do you have any, I'm putting you on the spot now, do you have any like data at hand to, to real money costs of buying into housing now for somebody in your generation versus earlier generations?
2: Um, you know, uh, it's, <laughs> I talk with a lot of my friends about this a lot. Um, you know, one thing is that you have to adjust the housing prices for inflation. So some people will not do that and they lose their minds at a $150,000 house um, out here, but I think it's safe to say that like in Rockville in general, um, you could afford some of these houses in Twinbrook for the equivalent of like three hundred dollars to $350,000 for some of like the, at least a new at the time kind of thing. Um, and now what we're talking about is like closer to the sixes, um, $500,000 range. And so in, in terms, and it you know, like varies a lot, like you sort of have to do like the whole comping thing, but like I think... Generally speaking, you're talking about like a sort of overall increase of like maybe two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars, um, which out of a three hundred thousand dollar base is quite a big increase. So
0: I, I think didn't you guys just have your first million dollar house?
2: Did I hear that? Uh,
0: that sounds right.
1: Yeah, I know. I really luckily bought April first, two thousand twenty, at the beginning of the pandemic, and. You know, according to the online sources, my house values increased by 20%. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Just in that period of time? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, so the million dollar house, I mean, I had, I'm not surprised. I mean, yeah. um,
0: East Rockville, then Lincoln Park, and I think now Twinbrook, all, all in the last few years five years more. and are
2: these teardowns mm-hmm. yeah largely, yeah yeah exactly because yeah. i mean i think a misconception that people have is that the housing the house itself is valuable which it is right but really it's the land right um right and so um uh but um but yeah i mean it's you know um i think the generation that i'm the millennial um and i think there's a broad concern that generally speaking looking back in history uh that the previous generation's life was more affordable um so this is sort of like the general inequality stuff i mean even now with inflation like a lot of that's rental inflation um and uh so there's this sort of concern that um i think you know not to go like way way down and sort of to uh, sort of political punditry but i think as these changes have happened, the sort of things we're talking about, sort of the status quo, right? Like doing nothing has actually, in fact, meant something has happened. I think part of that is led to sort of a big distrust of just sort of general politics to sort of solve people's problems. Um, I think uh, people are, I think sort of in a somewhat, understandably, even though I disagree very deeply, I think like disengagement is very bad, um, but I understand where people are coming from who think sort of, look, this has happened over a period of time where now I can't afford a house. What could these people possibly do for me? Um, And so I think uh, these kinds of things, I mean, when you first notice it, I mean, I didn't really notice it when I was younger, um, you know, when I was, until I was in my mid to late 20s, where you're sort of finally, like, feel like you're understanding everything and you're like, oh, I wonder, okay, like, how much would it cost to buy a house in this neighborhood the 16th Street Heights where I was living in? And I was like, oh, it's a million dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And This is for a row house. Um, and I was like, well, how, how who could afford it? And there were three types of people. I loved all my neighbors, truly. They were incredible people. Um, I think our region is amazing. Like whether it's Rockville or DC or Virginia, it's just like really great people. Um,
1: Virginia. Virginia.
2: <laughs> My wife would agree with you. I mean, <laughs> um,
1: because she's from Baltimore. She's from Baltimore. Right? Baltimore yeah. Oh, yeah. Born and bred Marylanders. Yeah. I, never, I, never live in Virginia. I don't know why. It's the one place in the world I will never live. <laughs>
2: My um, wife's the same way. <laughs> uh, but like the kinds of people who were there were either people who... Um, you know were independently wealthy right? they've been very successful in life whether or whether their their family was very successful in life Um, either that or they lived there a really long time right sort of like a house that had been handed down from generation to generation bought for like the equivalent of 250 to 300 thousand dollars at the time now worth a million dollars and then the others were people who had sold real estate previously and made lots of gains and moved from place to place getting more equity out of it um, to be able to move from an apartment to a small house to a slightly bigger house to an even bigger house Um, and it's very hard when you're 26 or 27 to see the average person to see a path there because what it really says is that you either need to have been you need to be older than you actually are in order to have done the housing equity ladder you either need to have parents who are very well off or family that's very well off because um, and you can't have been there and lived in the house before.
1: Well, and and compared to D.C., like we're missing several rungs of that uh, housing equity ladder. So maybe this is where the conversation turns for a minute, I think just yeah, yeah, yeah. between you and I about zoning. Oh,
0: uh, you know um, what? I I am gonna step. I'm gonna take the headphones off and. Oh, yeah, you're you're
1: yeah. like legit. legit yeah. Conversation. <laughs> um. Yeah, so many places it seems are suffering from having developed zoning laws, which were intended to support, you know, the American dream of owning your single-family home and having a little plot of grass around it, um, and which worked for a bit, and then maybe the not working part was shielded a little bit by all the wealth that was being reflected in equity statements for homeowners. And, but then we find ourselves now with a large, young generation looking for housing and not being able to find options other than maybe a condo, more likely an apartment building, or a really big single family home. And so in terms of policies around the types of things we can build, is, are there any specific policies you're pushing pushing for, or just like zoning reform in general? Um,
2: yeah, I mean, so um, I, I think you're. I, I think I, number one, I think that's that, that's spot on. Um, I you know one thing for speaking just as affordable Maryland is that um, we're really open minded. Um, You know, I think the one thing that we have are really excited to see, and at least in terms of the candidates here, and you're seeing it more and more countywide, is just people will say, Oh, you know, we all know housing prices are going up, but they won't do it won't propose any bills, right? They won't do anything about it. Setting aside like what should what is the what is right? What is what is what should we do? Um now more and more we're actually seeing that this is a big issue. And so one thing is just like saying, "Hey, this is a very important topic that should be at least in the top five of things that you should be worried about and you should be thinking about what to do." Um, we are, you know, our our group of people, you know, we're very open-minded about creative solutions. You know I mean? So one thing that's came up before, um, I know it comes up on occasion in Rockville, but it's a, a county thing, um, is um, parking. Right, so um, there are uh, what's called sort of parking minimums, but really it's just like a mandate that there has to be a certain amount of parking. And I know like a common thing will be, people will come to the planning commission and ask for like a, a variance or a, an adjustment to, to handle that. And that's so this is a very common thing that comes up, but it increases the price of the, of the housing
1: it's it's almost like we built our cities for cars (laughs) war on cars will be a different episode
2: (laughs) Um, but you know there's sort of just some of these simple things like um, you know if you uh, do a market research about the people who are going to live in the housing that you're building which is a very common thing I mean these are people are taking a risk um, uh, by building a house what if uh, you know it's not like a t-shirt right like if no one buys the t-shirt and you just sell it at a, a loss, it's just one t-shirt, right? Um, but for these housing, it's very, the land is very expensive, it's a very capital and labor intensive project. Um, you know, they do market research to say, like, the kinds of people who would like to live here are people who are buying here because it's going to be near to the train station, or it's very bikeable or walkable. Um, and uh, now you can easily get a grocery delivery service, so it's not the, not a big deal, and we think that. 60% of people are going to be like that, whereas other people are going to have one or two cars. Um, you know, the the lack of sort of a flexibility there because doing so um, can add more units, um, can make those units cheaper because parking, you know, depending on how it's being built, whether it's for a large building or not, you know, drilling down below the, the floor level to create a big underground parking facility is also extremely expensive and that those costs get brought up. So um, those are the kind of things that we're interested in. Um, uh, and I think uh, in a, one thing that's great about Rockville, for example, I think this is true of other smaller areas, just like we know the land that we're in. Right. Um, you know, we know the different neighborhoods and, and what the constraints are. Um, and so having lots of things on the table and not being super dogmatic, I think is like, very important. I think do no harm at a minimum uh, is like uh, a big thing, paying attention to the issues. But otherwise, we're like very open minded. I mean, we have some people in our coalition who are really big on some of the work that the Housing Opportunities Commission has done in Montgomery County, where, you know, private developers and the county and the Housing Production Fund are actually building affordable and market rate housing together. You know, the county, the Housing Opportunities Commission is the landlord. and uh, you know we have some people on that end of the spectrum we have other people who are very focused on you know changes to zoning or streamlining approaches to making the approval process for housing a lot faster because that's another concern it's like um, you know all these different pain points that slow down the project which um, just means you're buying land and holding on to it and incurring all sorts of costs which also increases the, the price and so there's lots of stuff that you could do um, beyond Uh, sort of really huge changes that I'm not even sure are on the table um, because they're sort of uh, maybe uh, you're painting with a very broad uh, brush uh, broad stroke rather Um, and so we're very open-minded which I think is great Um, it sort of allows us to listen to what people have to say and there's some things where we're like very much not not with and a lot of it just sort of depends on the details Um, but
1: yeah, you know, I think uh, you know we don't even realize how much kind of planning ha- and zoning has been relied on to control what a neighborhood looks like until you start diving in. And and I, I just started diving in because I want a shed in my yard and I'm going to build it myself. And had to put in for a permit, which will I mean, uh, you know, God, weeks into the waiting process. <laughs> also, I I need to. Call my city council member, write them an email, because it says on the website it's 22 cents per square foot for the fee, which somehow for a 96-square-foot shed turned into $132. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm that bad at math. But I was looking at it because a, a friend of mine has a fence that's in disrepair, and supposedly you need a permit to fix your fence. Yeah, And they're not going to do that. Yeah, uh, I don't know anybody with any sense who would put in for a permit to fix their fence.
2: The thing that's been most interesting to me is um, both seeing how the zoning structures... uh, There's a great book by um, a guy uh, named Nolan Gray called Invisible Lines. That's what zoning is. Um, But the thing that struck me the most, especially in Rockville, is um, how often things... uh, exist despite the zoning right or they were allowed previously but um but are 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 not now um whether it's you know garden apartments um near in hungerford Mm -hmm. um near uh dogwood park um or little townhome communities here and there Um, near the 7-Eleven and the Ritchie Center.
1: Former resident, Dogwood Park. (laughs)
2: Uh, And it's just one of those things where when you just think about it a little bit, um, it starts to just make a little bit less sense.
1: Well, we built up almost too late to really have some of the best kind of missing middle, air quotes type housing, but over in Tacoma Park, the little You know the brick eight unit apartment blocks in the middle of the residential neighborhood which are there because they were built before they were zoned out
2: yeah exactly
1: Um, and and are some of the only kind of affordable types of housing in Tacoma Park at this point
2: yeah exactly yeah so um, it's uh, I mean the way I like to think about it too is just like a lot of this stuff is just a return to what made these communities special which was this dynamism to allow different types of people to move out here um, at different socioeconomic uh, levels, um, and uh, we just are trying to get back in touch with what that is, so that the next generation of people who move and come to um, to Rockville, um, you know that that that's that's available for them. And yeah. so it's been really heartening. I mean, we endorsed, you know, in Rockville four candidates, um, three in Gaithersburg, who are all we think are like pretty broadly on board with some of these things. Not everything. We don't want to like hold people um, to account, and we're, like I said, very open-minded. Um, but it's really heartening. I mean, one of the things that I think has been felt really good about what we've done is I think we've hopefully elevated that issue as a very important one. You know, I think in the past this has been the case um, in Rockville, um, and we hope it is. I mean, we would like to live in a world where it's not as big of an issue, um, but we. Um, it's been really refreshing to hear people who are, you know, really serious about this. Putting out information in a questionnaire, whether it's the Greater Greater Washington questionnaire or on their website or at forums, it's great that this is um, taken so seriously, um, and it's really exciting to engage with people who see something as a problem um, and have real thoughts um, and have been an act, have been activists in some cases in some of these things. So, you know, happy to talk more about whether it's zoning or the election stuff.
1: Yeah, I think I'm I'm done with the zoning. I'll just a plug for those who might be worried about losing equity in your home. If you want a really valuable single-family home, have the only single-family home on a nice, walkable, dense street. You'll see your values
2: skyrocket. (laughs) So yeah, if you want to come back Let's let's welcome
1: Susan back to the garage. (laughs) (laughs) It's cold
0: out there, (laughs) isn't it? Thanks, guys. So, okay, here's the most important question of the afternoon, Jonathan, have you eaten anywhere good lately?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, I was thinking about this before I came over, and uh, there's a new stall that opened up in the Pike Kitchen, um, El Poppy Street Tacos. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, they, this is their, their second location. Their first location is in Camp Springs, Maryland, near, uh, I believe, Andrews Air Base. Um, and it's just an incredible taqueria. Um, the, I watched um, Signature Dish on WETA, their like food show. Mm-hmm. And they interviewed the guy, and he's just like been making birria since he was five years old. Um, it's, um, and yeah, the, this is his second location. Um, and I didn't even hear about it opening. I heard about it in um, Tim Carman's review of the fire pit truck. Mm. Um, I didn't even know they'd open. Um, had opened, but it's incredible. Their quesabirria tacos are fantastic. Everything on on that uh, menu is is fantastic, and it's just another sort of stall in the near where the um, Hello Vietnam was um, in the Pike Kitchen. So highly recommend.
0: Tacos are one of our uh, hey Rockville's love languages. So uh, <laughs> now
2: thank we you. have
1: multiple locations for beer tacos. Yeah, yeah, nice.
2: oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, Zentley and El Papi are my um, my one two. Um, both fantastic. Awesome. I really recommend. I'm
0: trying to, I don't think we've eaten out, we've been cooking, it's crazy. We did, you know, we did old favorite China bistro, but you know. It's delicious, but we all already know about it.
1: Yes. Yeah. Oh, um, we have in Twinbrook another bakery. Well, I think we talked about Mirabeau. I don't think we did. We talked about Mirabeau? Yeah. Mirabeau near the Twinbrook train station on our side, the west east side. Nice. Um, And Brew, which I haven't been to yet, but Deepa. That's my wife, um, a restaurateur from New York. Originally, just kind of doing coffees and beers, but people ask for food. So he's uh, Peruvian and does ceviches. Wow. And sounds great. It's very good from somebody who doesn't usually eat a lot of ceviche. Nice. And also, big ups to Mastija, hmm. which now has a coffee pop up on Saturdays. Uh, from '91, to 3 Uh, but it's uh pop-up meal, coffee, minor Osorio out of Gaithersburg, comes down and makes us some great espressos on Saturday mornings
0: at the bakery. At the bakery, nice because I saw they have the truck now I'm making. They do
1: have the truck lunches um, and such. It's a different chef in the truck, but they have a really good Greek menu. Uh, he's actually from Louisiana.
2: <laughs> huh. Always, the food
1: is good.
0: You know, I had my first uh, Greek and Middle Eastern food when I was at LSU, and it was delicious. There's a lot of there's. A, I don't. I can't speak to why there would be really terrific Greek food in Louisiana, but I can say that LSU, as at the time, in 1990, were you born? Yet? Jonathan. born. Yeah, Jonathan. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. So when I was in college at LSU in 1990. It was one of two land and sea grant institutions that had a huge chemical engineering, as you might imagine being in Louisiana, chemical engineering program and worked with Stanford. And so there were a lot of people from oil producing nations who had come uh, and brought mom and dad and auntie, and they all opened cafes. So it's a terrific Middle East. Well,
1: LSU has always had a big Greek community, right? I'm
2: looking
0: at the drums. Oh, I'm ready for this. Yeah, it did. <laughs> it took me a second. It hear. did. It was in 1990. It was the number one party school in the country. Not that I was doing any of that, but anyway. Well, Jonathan, it was great to have you. So nice to meet you. Pleasure. Thanks for engaging the city and thanks for engaging with us. Matt, always a pleasure. Likewise. All right, till next time.